Hello and welcome to the latest Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm being joined today, as always, in this podcast series by the fund manager and author Peter Silent. Peter, it's with a heavy heart, I have to say, that we're opening this podcast today. Two episodes ago, we had a conversation uh, about the growing tensions around Ukraine. And since then, unfortunately, President Putin of Russia has taken the decision to invade Ukraine with what intermediate or long-term objectives in mind uh, we can discuss. Uh, We're recording this on uh, Monday, the 28th of February. So this is four days after the initial invasion. And uh, we're going to talk about what we think has happened and what is going to happen next, uh, with a caveat, of course, that by the time you listen to this, events may, as so often in, in wartime, may have moved on significantly. So, Peter, good morning. And uh, I want to kick off by reminding you what you said in the last time we discussed this in depth, which was two episodes ago. And you said that uh, Mr. Putin was a man with a chip on his shoulder and a big gun, whereas the United States and NATO on the other side of what uh, NATO at least had hoped would be a negotiating table uh, had presented a box of chocolates. In other words, there was a huge disparity between the way in which these two, what we now have to call protagonists, uh, have approached each other. Obviously, since then, we've learned what Mr. Putin was really all about all this time. But let's kick off by asking you what you make of Mr. Putin's decision to invade in the first instance, and then we'll talk about some of the potential consequences. Well, good morning, Jonathan. It's on the one hand very nice to be back online, but on the other hand, the circumstances of this conversation are very worrying indeed. I wouldn't withdraw what I said about Mr. Putin being having a chip on his shoulder and carrying a gun. I think that was almost like a compliment. Today, I would call him a paranoid schizophrenic with the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world, or almost, and who is surrounded by a very small number of advisors. I don't know who they are. Presumably, they're sycophants who tell him what he wants to hear. I also learned that Mr. Putin does not use the internet. And I was thinking about that. What kind of a person are you or do you become if you don't make use of the internet? How informed or how disinformed are you? So all these things are very worrying. I think that since we last spoke, Jonathan, there's been quite a lot of progress. Progress in various directions that needed progress. And I'm referring here to Europe in the first instance, where I see potentially the first signs And I say that with a small s, the first signs of a common energy policy, which is urgent, a common defense policy, which is equally urgent, and a common foreign policy, which is also very urgent. And in these three areas, there was a void for many decades. And it could be that because everybody agrees in their condemnation of what Mr. Putin is doing, I think this could finally spur the European countries into these three common policies. You asked what Mr. Putin wants. He just wants to recreate the structures, the contours of the Soviet Union. I was speaking to an Austrian gentleman the other day to ask him what he thought, because Vienna is no more than 300 miles 
from the Ukrainian border. And so to have the Russians potentially at the gates of Vienna is very worrying, especially because Austria is not a NATO member. And this Austrian gentleman said, well, we will have to learn to live with a new iron curtain. And I think that's a very realistic assessment. Well, that is a very uh, disagreeable and uh, unpleasant thought, it has to be said, particularly as we're now, what, 30 years or so after we thought that the Iron Curtain had effectively been eliminated. I guess, though, first of all, perhaps we should just, you know, we are speculating, of course, but now we know what Mr. Putin's intentions are. He's demonstrating them by his actions. And a number of people hope that he actually he was just negotiating, you know, trial of strength in order to gain some negotiated gains of some sort, diplomatic gains, eventually, by using military force as a threat. But he has invaded, and we don't know how far he plans to go with that. Uh, are you saying that you think that his intention, at least when he started out, was to occupy the whole country or simply to overthrow the government and install a puppet regime and maybe uh, keep his tanks stationed around, you know, part of the country? Maybe some people say only on the on the eastern side of the river that runs through the middle of Ukraine. We don't have any, obviously, any idea about what his real plan is, but do you have any thoughts about what that might be? Because that might well influence what, uh, what happens next. I certainly have thoughts about what those plans might be, and what is ringing in my ears are the words of a friend of mine who comes from Georgia, actually, he's Georgian, and who knows Mr. Putin very well. He's had very many meetings with him. And he told me time and again that Mr. Putin is completely mad. And I think that's already a very dangerous situation in connection with the chip on his shoulder. So I think to answer the second half of your question, we need to look at a map, not only a map of Ukraine, but also beyond. You have to look at the whole European map. We touched on this a couple of sessions ago. And this leads me to believe that he doesn't want to stop assuming that he wins this war, which is a big assumption. It's a much bigger assumption than it was a few days ago only. But if you look at the whole of the map, the Iron Curtain stretched from the Baltic states down through the Central European states, uh, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and then all the way down. And if this is what he wants to recreate then what would I do if I wanted to recreate the Iron Curtain? Well, I'd obviously start off by occupying Belarus, and then I'd put some nuclear weapons into Belarus, and then I've got nuclear weapons all the way up to the border with Poland and with Lithuania, and then I've got nuclear weapons further down on the border of Slovakia and of Hungary. And if you look at what he's doing in the Black Sea... That's equally very dangerous. He's blockading all the Ukrainian ports in the Black Sea. He's got a big force and maritime force in the northwestern corner of the, of the Black Sea, round about Odessa. And what we now need to concentrate on, because we keep hearing about uh, the vulnerability of the Baltic states, but think about what happens further south. There is an old convention, which is, I think, called the Montreux Convention from 1936, whereby the sea straits of the Bosporus and the Dardanelles, which are the only two routes to get into the Aegean Mediterranean Sea, are only allowed to be used for commercial purposes. 
And uh, of course, if that were not the case, then he would have free access via these two straits into the Mediterranean Sea. And that would in turn have consequences in the Balkans, where the Russians have gained more and more influence, not only in the Balkans themselves, the southern Balkan countries, but then further south in the Middle East. So as a chess player, he would, of course, take a very big 360-degree view of the picture, and he would get back that which he used to have for hundreds of years until most recently, and you could argue that he's prepared to do anything to achieve that aim. Yes, and uh, that is indeed worrying. I mean, we're not quite into Dr. Strangelove territory, but we're getting kind of close in a way if we have someone who has got some kind of personality disorder. And he does appear very, as, as many people have noticed, you know, his public appearances, he does appear to be acting in a rather strange way, look very puffy-faced, and this obsession with, you know, keeping his distance from people and so on. It could have come out of a movie, to be honest, but it's uh, happening in real life. And of course, that poses a big challenge for the West on the other side of all this, because if you're dealing, you know, the, the famous sort of mad dog theory, which if you're, you know, it's a very effective strategy, the mad dog strategy, because if you like, if you aren't going to behave rationally, then it's very difficult for your opponents to know how to handle that. But as you say, I mean, we don't, of course, we don't know, as you say, what, what the outcome is going to be. The Ukrainians are putting up some stiff resistance so far, which may well have a bearing on what happens next. Because I think the last thing that Mr. Putin expected, well, I think, was that he'd be, he'd be bogged down in a long war. He was expecting the tanks would roll in, I think, to Kiev without much uh, opposition. Rather like, as I recall, from 1968, when the, the tanks rolled into Czechoslovakia. So we don't know quite how long the Ukrainians can hold out and, and what kind of damage they can do. And whether that forces him into a change of mind... But uh, as you say, the West has done rather more than many people were expecting. I mean, the Europeans have been very active in a number of ways. And uh, so far, the Americans have been making uh, some right noises, at least. You're taking the positive view that this has actually stiffened the resolve of the West to some extent. Are you saying that? Effectively stiffened, I should say, the resolve of the, of the West. It's exactly what I'm saying. Now, whether it's wishful thinking or not, time will tell. But, for example, what the Germans have done Compare the German attitude from what it was at the beginning of this crisis to what happened over the weekend. At the beginning of this crisis, they were on Russia's side. They wanted to keep Nord Stream 2 out of the discussion. The new chancellor kept his cards very close to his chest. And then in a magnanimous gesture, they sent 2,000 helmets to the Ukrainians, which was completely ridiculous. And they didn't really want to be drawn in. That was at the beginning. Now, they've not only sent a lot of ground-to-air, surface-to-air missiles directly into Ukraine, but also they have now decided to commit up to 2% of their GDP into the NATO infrastructure. So they're upping their defense spending, which was one of the great criticisms that one had, not only against Germany, but against a lot of other countries when they were members of NATO. So that, I think, is important in terms of a common defense policy. A common energy policy, I think, is something that is going to be forced upon them because in the next days and weeks, you could easily find that we are in a situation where the gas supply is cut off. And so I think Europe has understood that Europe needs an alternative source of energy. And they're working frenetically, whether it's liquefied natural gas 
or other things. It makes the whole obsession with climate change fade into the background a little bit. Um, but they need, I think the Europeans have their backs to the wall in that respect, in the respect of needing a common energy policy. And then thirdly, a common foreign policy. Yes, well, that will be probably the most difficult thing to achieve because if you compare what President Macron wants, it's not necessarily the same as what the Hungarians and the Poles want. I am happy to see that these very Hungarians and Poles regional players are being drawn in a little bit more into this discussion with regard to Ukraine. I was very worried that earlier on in the crisis, it was all President Biden or Mr. Boris Johnson, who has a completely different agenda of his own, but that the real players, the local players, were being left out of the discussion. Finally, I noticed something interesting that when you listen to President Putin rambling along like a maniac in Russian, and you then notice the difficulty that the simultaneous translators have in translating what he's saying, and you basically learn nothing uh, from these simultaneous translators. They're having great problems. And it just shows that the man is mad. And the very latest threats, nuclear threats, are something, of course, that we must keep a very close eye on, Jonathan. Indeed. And that is, a you know, as a, again, the nightmare scenario where you have somebody who's mentally disturbed, perhaps you could put it, or deranged or something else, who has access to uh, buttons to fire the nuclear missiles. That, of course, is a big concern. But, of course, on the other side, as you say, it appears to be that so far all he's succeeded in doing is um, bringing the West, the other side of this whole uh, episode, into some sort of greater unity than was there before. Uh, and they've moved a bit further forward on the sanctions front as well, uh, taken some rather more decisive action than was originally thought, as you say, partly because the Germans and others have come off the fence, if you like, a little bit, uh, and supported these rather more dramatic measures. What do we know about the Russian economy and how it's likely to be affected by the sanctions that are being put in place. And, of course, there's, there's vulnerability on both sides. As you say, Europe is vulnerable because of, of energy and uh, other food in, as well. In particular, Ukraine's a, the breadbasket of Europe, as it's often been described, provides, I think, uh, 30% of the continent's wheat, or even the world's wheat. Um, so who has the balance advantage here, and how do you think that is going to play out in terms of the economic impact of what... Uh, what's been happening so far. It reminds me of what Reagan did in the early 80s when he increased his defence capabilities and his defence spending, uh, provoking Russia to do the same, except that Russia couldn't afford it. And so in the end, it went bankrupt. And when it went bankrupt, that was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union and the Iron Curtain was dismantled. The fact that the... Western countries are now planning to freeze the foreign exchange reserves that the Russians have, which are equivalent to $630 million, some of which is parked with, with the Chinese central bank, but it's very vulnerable. The result of that could be uh, another Russian default. If you look at the stock market in Russia, which has completely collapsed, then what I'm saying is, is made more realistic by what the stock market is signaling us. Uh, if you look at what the ruble has done up until today, it's collapsing again today. You could argue that uh, this is the beginning of the end for Russia. And you could argue that the man is cornered 
But you could also argue that the more he's cornered, the more he behaves dangerously and will react like a cornered rat. And I think, therefore, that we haven't seen the end of this by any means. And in terms of ricocheting back into the Western economies, the sanctions ricocheting back, that's something which is work in progress, which we're looking at at the moment very closely, how it affects which parts of the economy and how much. So it's a little bit early to answer that particular question. But maybe you've got some views on that. What does your instinct tell you in terms of the sanctions being on the one hand effective, but on the other hand ricocheting back and uh, harming those who put the sanctions in place? Well, I think there are lots of vulnerabilities on both sides. I think that's clear. Uh, and that's what you'd expect. I mean, because part of the process of the last 30 years has been in a way to, you know, symbolized by the gas pipeline and so on, but has been to kind of absorb, to redevelop, if you like, uh, economic relations between Russia and, and Europe. And uh, that's so we're more interdependent and therefore both sides have vulnerabilities. And I think the fact that sanctions have gone a bit further than people that actually expected um, I think that's interesting. It does raise the stakes, I think, as you say. And we know, for example, that, you know, the Italians banks are in trouble again. I mean, whatever whatever happens, it always seems to be the Italian banks are in trouble um, because they have lent a lot of money to Russian companies and, and so on. And so Mr. Draghi, the prime minister, has been dragging his feet a little bit. Uh, yes, it's very worrying. And if we have, you know, if they do cut off the gas, for example, which I rather think they won't, but if they did, that would cause a lot of issues and test the resolve of, you know, democratic governments in the West. So I think the economic impact could be very important, but it's the more the ratcheting up of the of the risks, as you say, that is, uh, would, that would really test the resolve of uh, leaders in the West and in Europe. So I think I can't see a particular positive out of it unless Mr. Putin eventually accepts that he's not going to get what he wants and he retreats. And as you say, that doesn't seem to be something which is in his uh, makeup or in his personality. Uh, at the moment. Having said all that, of course, we could look at the, the way that the markets have reacted to what's happened so far. And obviously, we've only got the evidence of what happened in the last couple of days of last week and this morning, uh, Monday, the 28th of February. And uh, what we've seen is the initial kind of reaction on Thursday when the news broke, uh, where we saw all the traditional things happening. The stock market went up, the bonds yields went down, gold edged up a little bit. Uh, and oil prices went up. But then that kind of pretty much all reversed on Friday, as a number of people obviously took you know a longer view of this, or a slightly longer view, perhaps another another week ahead rather than a day ahead. Uh, but this morning, again, uh, it seems that we're getting more of a uh, the normal expected reaction to this kind of thing. But so far, so far, I mean, the reaction has been pretty muted, has it not? So that would imply that at least in economic terms, the short-term damage is going to be pretty limited. But I wonder if that's a uh, not a rather rosy-tinted view. It may be a rosy-tinted view, and I hope you're not going to ask me to crystal ball at this point, because now it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, in fact, it's probably, it do doesn't really help if you look at share prices every five minutes and bond prices and currencies every five minutes, because the volatility is really such that the market right now uh, doesn't have a clue, and how could it? So the turbulence is something which is part and parcel of these things. But nonetheless, I would point out that if you take, let's say, the last, since the Second World War, 
whenever there have been seriously, seriously big geopolitical events which affected the world superpowers and or the natural resources prices and especially the oil price, you could have expected there to be not only a sharp downward reaction, but a protracted one in financial markets. That's what you could have expected. But if you look at what happened in these last, whatever it is, 70 years, on the major occasions, many of which, Jonathan, you and I, we were at our desks when they happened, it didn't last very long and wasn't necessarily, they weren't major events, they weren't crashes and things like that. And in terms of Russia as an actor, Russia has a long record of trampling on neighbors, either neighbors outside their country or within their vast country. That's the reason why they have such a vast country in the first place is because they invaded everything left, right and center for hundreds of years. But specifically, Hungary in 1956, Czechoslovakia in 1968, Afghanistan, I think in 1980, when they invaded that country, Chechnya in 2000 and beyond, Georgia in 2008, Crimea in 2014, as well as, you know, invading, occupying and supporting the sort of breakaway provinces, South Ossetia, Abkhazia and all the rest of it. So they've got a long track record of doing this and we mustn't expect that they suddenly become the goody-goodies. They won't. What we might expect is that, like all his predecessors, this is the death knell for President Putin. And I make no difference between President Putin, who ostensibly is not a communist, and all his predecessors, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, Andropov, Chernenko, Gorbachev to a certain extent, Yeltsin to a certain extent, much lesser extent, but they're all the same. And so I think we've got to be very resolute in standing up to him and not appease. And luckily, I've noticed in the last couple of weeks, I think this is the most encouraging thing, that the appeasement attitude by the Western governments has, has improved. They're less of appeasers. I don't know if you remember what Churchill said on several occasions about appeasement. Appeasement is like feeding the crocodiles until they devour you last. And in this case, Putin is definitely the main crocodile. Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, and also has to remember, of course, that uh, the secret of success, if it comes to warfare, and I think we can talk about this as warfare in, in a way, this is geopolitics, but it's also economic warfare to an extent, and it may well become cyber warfare as well. We haven't really talked about that possibility or risk, which some people are taking very seriously. But you have to pick your ground to fight on, don't you? I mean, this is the other factor. And when you've got a very broad coalition, uh, as there is in NATO, it's very difficult to perhaps to make the judgments about where you pick your ground to fight uh, and uh, in what way. It's a difficult challenge. And uh, that's something I think which um, I hope that we're going to be able to, to manage to handle this successfully. But uh, it's not a slam dunk by any means, I would say. And I have to admit, I'm very uh, 
concerned about, not just obviously about the, the war itself, but about some of the economic consequences and the pressure it's going to put on democratic governments in particular. They're going to find them faced with some very unpalatable choices. And so it's very important. I mean, the good news, I suppose, is that thanks to the media to some extent, but also thanks to Mr. Putin himself, you know, I think everybody apart from his own sort of group of courtiers can now see him very clearly for what he is. There were a lot of people who were kind of sympathetic before in some ways to some of his ambitions. But I think everybody can now see him for what he is. And I think that's been a very strong positive. And as long as public opinion holds firm, then I think with any luck, we can find a way through this. But it's not a pleasing prospect at all. I think it's very important what you just said, actually, because the difference between today's war and previous mini wars or major wars is that, of course, today, within a matter of hours, thanks to the internet and thanks to the social medias and all that, you've got millions of people around the world, including in Russia itself, millions of people demonstrating their displeasure at what Putin has done. And I think that's very important. It's even more extreme than it was, for example, in the Arab Spring revolutions at the time, which, which happened very quickly. And now it's happening even more quickly. And that means that Putin is now probably the most isolated man in the globe. And nobody is approving of what he's done. Obviously, there are one or two tired old communists like Jeremy Corbyn in your country who thinks and continues to think that Mr. Putin is marvelous. But on the whole, even, I read, even members of his own army are beginning to, to show their displeasure and their distaste. So it really boils down to, I think, in my mind, what I was saying a minute ago, which is how dangerous is a cornered rat and when will he be the cornered rat? It looks as if he's not winning this war. And so when will he be in the corner? That I don't know. I would just mention on your last point there, I mean, there is this issue on the global diplomatic stage, if you like. I mean, I believe I'm right in saying that Russia is currently the chairman of the UN Security Council, which is, I mean, it would be funny if it wasn't tragic. And Obviously, they vetoed the vote uh, condemning the invasion and asking him to withdraw. Um, but it was interesting that, you know, we knew the Chinese would probably abstain. But so did the Indians and so did the Israelis. Quite interesting developments. So you can, again, always find reasons why those particular countries might be holding back on what would otherwise be a pretty, you would think, a pretty clear situation. So what I'm trying to say is that I think the, you know, the multinational institutions that we set up after the war to enforce you know, the, the post-war settlement, if you like, well, they're not working, are they? So, I mean, we're falling back on NATO, which is a, a different kind of organization. Uh, but the UN is basically not fit for purpose anymore. Yes. And you could argue that it hasn't been fit for purpose for a long time, that whenever one needed the most, they failed. I never understood why, this is what I always criticize, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council the permanent members, two of them are Russia and China. And um, it's pretty obvious that we're not going to make a lot of progress in that constellation. I find it, uh, as you said, it's tragic. If it weren't tragic, it would be very funny. The perpetrator of this war happens to be the chairman of the UN Security Council. That is absurd if it weren't so tragic. So, yes, I think these things that were put together after the war 
are more or less useful. I, I must say NATO, I find, I find myself thinking that where would we be if we didn't have NATO today? We don't have a European army because the British always blocked that. So luckily we've got NATO and luckily all the ex-communist countries of the Warsaw Pact have joined NATO. So I would say that NATO does work. It worked in the Yugoslav war when it bombed the hell out of Milosevic in uh, Sarajevo. But of course, even there, the first foreign troops in Sarajevo were the Russians, funnily enough. Hence my earlier comments about the Balkans. So I don't think we should be too depressed about the malfunctioning of the institutions set up after the war, although I do agree with you. But I think that at the same time, progress is being made before our very eyes. And of course, we'll see what happens if Putin crosses the line and starts endangering NATO member countries in the center of Europe. So we haven't seen the end of this yet. No, you're absolutely right. And I guess it's a, you know, it's a sad day in a sense where we are relying on in a sense, you know, the Russians to fail in their objectives, uh, maybe because the army doesn't want to fight when it gets to killing civilians, or maybe because somebody eventually persuades Putin that he's he has gone mad and he's really throwing away the keys to any future constructive relationship with, with the West, which will be economically very costly for the people of Russia. So, you know, one has to just hope that there is a, a, a course out of this by some kind of rational and logical process. Uh, but as I say, these are very, very anxious times. And it is a surprise to me uh, so far that the financial markets have been relatively gung-ho about it. I would almost go as far as saying. But we'll have to see. So I think that's as far as we can take it today, Peter. But obviously, I think we will return to this subject uh, perhaps you know more frequently than we've been doing these podcasts because it is so important. And uh, I do so value your perspective incorporating, as it does, hundreds of years of European history seen from your perspective and from mine sitting here on the fringes of Europe, as you say, and getting rather anxious about it. Well, that's why we are called Moses and Methuselah. But on a final ending note, I would just urge us to keep a close eye on financial, on the liquidity side of the financial markets at the moment in general, and specifically because you mentioned Italy, and Italy does have a lot of uh, Russian banks on their books that they've lent money to, as well as France and um, Austria, my country. But we should keep an eye, a close eye on the, on the bond market and the famous spread between the Italian bonds and the German bonds. That's something we need to keep an eye on because it's an indication of the general liquidity picture. So thank you very much, Jonathan. And I really look forward uh, to continuing this discussion as soon as possible. Thank you, Peter. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.